Good morning, my name is Nick Swan, I'm the Associate Pastor here at Grace. We're going to be continuing our series on Habakkuk, which Liz just read for us. You can follow along in your bulletin, I invite you to do so, or in your pew Bible, which is right in front of you on page 786. The title this morning of our message is Five Woes, Five Woes. Before we dive in, let me pray for us. Father, as we continue to persevere uh, through this pandemic, as we watch the news of the world around us and earthquakes and hurricanes and nations uh, crumbling, Father, I pray that you would comfort us this morning with a reminder that you are good, that you are sovereign over all the nations, that you are at work even in the most difficult of circumstances, and that one day your glory will fill the earth as the waters cover the seas. Father, may this be our confidence this morning and our hope this morning, we ask in Christ's name. My mother is a wonderful woman. She might be watching right now. Mom, if you are, you are a wonderful woman. She sometimes watches our streaming. She's a wonderful woman. Uh, When we were growing up, she took us to church, us the three boys. Oftentimes she would have to do so just on her own because my dad would work 24-hour shifts as a fireman. So she'd get up three rowdy, rambunctious boys and dress us and take us to church because she realized just how valuable it was for us to gather with God's people. She daily prayed for us and she continues to daily pray for us and our spouses and all of their grandchildren. She would... uh, instill in us the importance of good friends as we were growing up. And so she would gently but firmly direct us towards good friendships and away from bad friendships. Oftentimes she would gently nudge us to read our Bibles by leaving our Bibles open on our desks, which we always loved. You would come in and there's the Bible. All right, all right, I'll read it. And oftentimes there'd be a little note that would speak to one of the challenges that she knew we were facing and how to encourage, how we could be encouraged from God's word. Most of all, she simply loved us where we were through the ups and the downs and for who we were all throughout our lives. And one of the phrases that she used to say to us that really stuck with me was from Numbers 32, 23. And it says, be sure your sins will find you out. Be sure your sins will find you out. Now, this might sound like a typical kind of manipulative mom phrase, like, even when I'm not there, be sure your sins will find you out, son. Like, but that's not at all the heart behind it. What she was saying is, is, Look, God is always watching. He's always with you. What you reap, you will also sow. Therefore, live a life that's holy, even when no one else can see. This is what she was instilling in us. And this morning, we're going to hear these five woes, these proclamations of judgment that God is speaking to the Babylonians. Now, the Babylonians, they were a rising power in the ancient Near East. And God has told Habakkuk, this prophet, that he's about to use the Babylonians, the wicked Babylonians, to judge the wickedness within Judah. And the the Babylonians, they were at the height of their power and their success. They were a wicked people who had mercilessly accumulated power and wealth from all the nations around them. And this power and wealth they had gained through military might and they were protecting through their military might. And all of this power, it gave the Babylonians this illusion of invincibility. We can do whatever we want, whenever we want, however we want, and no one, no nation can ever stop us. And so in these verses, God is saying otherwise. In these verses, God says to them, Babylon, you will reap one day what you have sown. What goes around will come around to you, or as my mom would say, Babylon, be sure your sins will one day find you out. 
First point this morning is this, the first four woes. The first four woes. So earlier in chapter 1, Habakkuk has been crying out, God, when are you going to do something about the wickedness in Judah? And then God scares the daylights out of him. He's dumbfounded that God is actually going to use the more wicked Babylonians to judge the wickedness within Judah. And what God is now going to do in these verses, he's going to demonstrate not only is God going to judge Judah for their wickedness, he's actually also going to judge Babylon. And what God is making clear is, yes, Judah will be judged, but Babylon too will also be judged. All mankind throughout the earth will have to give an account to God. Last week, Marshall preached on Habakkuk 2.4 that the just will live by faith. And this faith is characterized by a salvation, trusting in a salvation outside of ourselves. It, it deflates us, if you will. Rather than trusting in ourselves, inflating ourselves in our own pride and arrogance that we can save ourselves, faith says there's a salvation outside of us. We deflate ourselves and we inflate our confidence in Christ who alone can save us. And so we have this passage from last week of faith that empties our confidence in ourselves. And now we have these verses about the arrogance and the pride of the Babylonians. They were a wicked and an arrogant people. God indeed was using them to bring judgment. And although they thought they were invincible, God was eventually going to bring them down to the grave. He was going to deflate their arrogant pride and show them that he alone is God. So let's begin with these woes of judgment. The first woe is this. It is against dishonest gain. So verses 6 and 8, they're the first woe. And what Babylon has done is they've amassed this great wealth, but they've done so through theft and through fraud. And what they've done is they've also preyed upon the poor through how they have lent money to them. That's what all these pledges are. So what they're doing is they're loaning at exorbitant interest rates, they're taking collateral for these loans, and then when the poor people can't pay them, they steal the collateral from them, all of their property. And so, and eventually throwing all these poor people into indentured servitude because they could not pay off their debt. So they are a wicked people who are stealing and de defrauding those around them. And as we're going to see with each of these woes, the punishment that God gives back to them, it fits the crime. So in due time, their debtors, they will arise to ultimately plunder them, and they, as they have plundered others. And these Babylonians, they will one day become the spoil of those that they have used and abused. The second woe is verses 9 through 11, and it's a woe against the insulation of wealth. The second one flows out of the first. They've gained all this wealth through theft and fraud. And then what they're doing is they then use this wealth to insulate themselves from the very people that they've extracted the wealth from. And so it's this imagery. They build this nest on high with all of this wealth. So they'll steal from all the poor people. They'll then build themselves houses high away, insulating themselves from the people that they are abusing. And the imagery here is used of a house. So this great house that they have built, this legacy of wealth and power, will one day cry out against them and will ultimately come down upon their heads. Verses 12 and 13 are the third woe against those whose power is built upon violence and sin. So Babylon has wreaked havoc throughout the ancient Near East. And it's described for us in Habakkuk 1 where it describes them as a bitter and hasty nation. 
who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, and their faces are forward. So in response to this vicious and wicked people, God makes clear that one day this great nation that they have built with their power, with their wickedness against all of these peoples will one day come down upon them. That it will be dissolved in smoke and fire and will ultimately come to nothing. And then the fourth woe, verses 15 and 17, it speaks against shaming the weak. So obviously they're a nation, they're, they're destroying people, but their, their wickedness, it's more personal, it's actually cruel. And what's described is that they get the people that they're oppressing to get drunk, and then they parade them around in their nakedness, shaming them in front of everyone around them. So not only are they a great nation that destroys nations, they're a cruel people who wreak havoc upon the individuals that they dominate. So in these four woes, we have a snapshot of what the Babylonians were like and the judgment that God is going to bring upon them. And it's so easy for us to see the wickedness of the Babylonians. No one's going to read this and think, these are good people. But what's challenging is, how do we then bring this forward into our context? Because the last time I checked, none of you are wreaking havoc through bloodshed. None of you are stealing things from other people. None of you at any of your parties recently, unless you've told me otherwise, have gotten people drunk and then made them parade around naked in order to shame them. Like, this isn't the usual sins that you and I would struggle with. So how do we, we bring this to our present day? I think we do so when we look at some of the bigger picture tendencies of the Babylonians. At bottom, the Babylonians worshipped their own power, their own strength. They lived as though they would never give an account for their actions. And they also, they used their wealth and power to further their own interests at the expense of or indifferent to the weak and the vulnerable around them. So we're a congregation with wealth, with influence. And this wealth and this influence, it gives us Power And to, much, to those whom much has been given, much is then required. So here are some questions for us to consider in light of God's judgment and pronouncement of judgments against the Babylonians. Are there any ways in which you are preying upon the poor? For instance, how do you engage with those who serve you day in and day out? We have lots of people who serve us in service industries. How do you engage with them? Are you conscious of what you purchase and how that is sourced? We get lots of cheap goods. Do we ever think about where we get those from and the people who make them? What are the long-term impacts of our own business practices and our ethics? Are there ways in which, though we are very distant from those impacted from the businesses we run, are there ways in which we are doing things that are impacting people at the very tail end of our practice and our ethics? Are there ways in which we are supporting politicians or policies that negatively or disproportionately impact the vulnerable and the poor in our society? Are there ways in which, to the detriment of others, we are embracing a way of life that always thinks about us first and protects our interests, our wealth, our security, our children? In other words, are we actively building a nest for ourselves high above the rest of the world sheltered from the people from whom most of our wealth is actually gained. 
Are we oblivious, passive, or indifferent to the violence in our society that leaves the the poorest, the weakest, and the most vulnerable among us subject to fear and uncertainty and even death? Do we mock or shame or abuse members of our society who are weak and defenseless because we're callous to their needs and basic human dignity? Friends, we are far away from some of the examples listed in these woes, but underneath them is a tendency to use our power to our own advantage. And we would be wise to consider whether we are doing so. And if so, to repent before a merciful and forgiving God of our actions and our attitudes. God moves from these four woes to the fifth woe, And this is our second point, a woe against idolatry, woe against idolatry. The reason I separated this fifth woe from the four that precede it is that I believe the sin of idolatry undergirds the four sins that previously lead up to it. Because whatever we worship, it inevitably shapes how we live. When we worship the one true God, our lives are shaped by a growing love for God and a growing love for others. But when we worship idols, the idolatry of our culture, we end up loving ourselves more than God and those around us. What we worship shapes how we live. So idolatry on the surface, it seems kind of absurd. When we read the Bible and we see them bowing down to these images, it's easy for us to look down a bit upon them. In Habakkuk, he actually captures some of the absurdity of this idolatry. In verses 18 and 19, What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath in it at all. So Habakkuk, he points to the absurdity of bowing down to these idols made of wood and metal. They're silent. They're speechless. They're unable to breathe, unable to teach. They're inanimate objects. Even more absurd is the idea of making an idol and then worshiping it. Intuitively, we know that if I created something, I'm obviously greater than that thing. So why would I create it and then bow down to it as though it is a god? The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 44, he well captures the absurdity of this idol worship when he talks of a man who splits a piece of wood. So imagine I take this, you notice the fancy new podium here? Take this fancy podium and I split it in half. And with one half, I cook my dinner and I warm myself. And then with the other half, I overlay it with some gold and some silver, and then I bow down to it and worship it and say, deliver me, for you are my God. That's the imagery that Isaiah says about idolatry. It's that that absurd. One half of the wood, fire and warmth. The other half, my God, that delivers me. But to understand idolatry, we must understand that idolatry, it's not about the object itself. It's not about the physical idol. What these idols represented for the Babylonians was an invisible God. So they create this wooden and metal thing, and they allow it to stand in for this invisible God that they worship. And they worship that invisible God because they believe that that God will give them what they desire. To bring it to the present, if I were to stack $1 million up on this stage in $100 bills, although many of us enjoy money, some of us may even worship money, None of you would come up because 
we're too good for this. None of you would come up and actually bow down to the physical paper. You would think that's ridiculous. But we can very easily worship what those little pieces of paper can give to us. The vacations, the cars, the house, the freedom, the security, the education for our children, clothing, status, food, wine. We can love all that that paper can give us. And so, no, do we actually bow down to it? Not literally, but many of us will love that money because that money can give us what we think we most need and desire. The Babylonians, they worshipped power. So they worshipped a god named Marduk, who was the, the king of the whole pantheon of the Babylonian gods. He was the king who, who created the earth, in a sense. And so they bow down to him, not because they think that wood and metal can deliver them, but because they think the god that that represents will give them the power that they so desperately desire. Is there anything you are worshipping other than God that you believe will satisfy your deepest desires? If you aren't sure where your idolatry is, here's a little means of self-assessment. I will often say this to people if they're wondering what it is that has their affections. If you want to know what has a hold of your heart, I want you to look at three things. Take a careful look at your bank statement. Take a careful look at your calendar. And take a careful look at your search history on your computer. And here's why. Where we spend our money will reveal what we love. Where we spend our time will reveal what we think is most important. And we can't keep track of all those ideas and thoughts that we have. if They're just flowing through our minds. But when we start clicking on a screen which reveals what we're thinking about, we suddenly have a whole history of what consumes our thoughts and our affections. And here's why this is so important. The reason why what we worship shapes our lives is because we ultimately end up becoming what we worship. If you think of our hearts as wax and worship as heat, when we begin to worship something, it softens our hearts and it ultimately begins to conform us to the things that we are worshiping. When we're worshiping God, it softens our heart with affection for Christ and we look more and more like him. When we're worshiping idols, it softens our hearts and we look more and more like them. This is what we see with the Babylonians. They're worshiping power. They bow down to a wicked and merciless god, Marduk. And so, no surprise, they begin to look like the idol they worship. Psalm 135 says it this way. Those who make idols and those who trust in them become like them. Deaf, blind, and dumb. In other words, when we worship an idol, we debase ourselves. We lose our living, breathing humanity and become like the lifeless idols we worship. When we worship God, we become more like him. When we worship idols, we become more like them. Is there anything you are worshiping other than God? Because you believe it will give you what you desire. Take a look at your bank account. Take a look at your calendar. Take a look at that search history and ask yourself, what do they reveal about what you are most passionate about? What gets your affection? Where do you see a love of God reshaping you to look more like Christ? And where might you see idolatry making you look more and more like the world? So now that I have succeeded in making us all depressed and introspective, <laughs> and hammering five woes, thank you, Marshall, for giving me this message and then going out of town, we now have rays of hope. This is point number three, rays of hope. 
So interspersed in these verses of woe are these rays of hope. First one comes in verse 14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. There will come a day when wickedness and suffering and death, they will be done away with. When the glory of God, his majesty, his purity, his holiness, his peace, they will fill the earth like waters cover the sea. If you, you know about water, it saturates everything, every nook and cranny. The glory of God will fill the earth, saturating everything with the glory of God. The second ray of hope is verse 20. Unlike the deaf and dumb idols made of wood and precious metal, the Lord is very much alive and in his holy temple. And before him, all the earth will keep silence. Throughout the scriptures, they have descriptions of those who worship idols. And if you notice, idol worshipers are really noisy. They're loud. There's a lot of word and action going on. Do you know why? Because their God can't say or do anything. They have to make all the noise themselves. The contrast is we serve the one true and living God. He's not a deaf, dumb, mute piece of wood and metal. He's the living God who speaks. Therefore, his worshipers can gather before him in silence and awe. We serve the living God who is in his temple and all the earth will be silent before him. These verses remind us that there's a coming day when despite all that we see, the world will be made right. When wickedness throughout this world will be done away with, when the glory and justice of God will finally reign supreme. One day the glory of the Lord will fill the earth. One day all who have rejected Christ will give an account for how they have lived. One day the name of Jesus, at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The question for each of us is, are you ready for that day? That day is coming. Are you prepared to stand before God on that day? One of the interesting things about the book of Habakkuk is that it's, it doesn't aim God's judgment just at Judah or just at the Babylonians. It aims God's judgment at both because both are idolatrous, both are wicked, and both deserve the wrath of God. All humanity will one day stand before God and give an account for how they have lived. All of us will have our sins find us out. Our only hope on that day is the last ray of hope, which is found in verse 16. Look at verse 16 with me. Last ray of hope. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. Now, you may be scratching your head thinking, how is that hope <laughs> that you just read this? Here's why this is hope. Apart from God's mercy... Each and every one of us would face this moment where our sins would find us out and what others have received from our hand, we would one day receive from the hand of God in judgment. Apart from God's mercy, we would each be drinking a cup of God's wrath. Wrath against our sin, wrath stored up for us for the day of judgment. But in God's mercy, he's made a way for us to be forgiven. In his mercy, he sent Christ to drink the cup of wrath on our behalf. We don't have to drink that cup of wrath because Christ has already taken that cup 
for us. This is what he's talking about in the Garden of Gethsemane when he's asking the Father, please take this cup from me. He knows that he has to face the wrath of God so that you and I, rather than drinking that cup, will drink up mercy and forgiveness through faith in Jesus Christ. Have you received Christ by faith? If not, you can be assured that your sins will find you out. Learn from the lesson of the Babylonians. Learn from their wickedness. Don't be inflated with the hope that your wealth and your power and your education can save you. It cannot. There will be one day when the mirage of your security will be removed and you will face the wrath of God alone. But you do not have to. You can receive mercy through faith in Jesus Christ. And if you have received Christ, rest in him this morning. Yes, there are trials and temptations. Yes, this life is difficult. But one day the glory of the Lord will fill the earth as the water covers the seas. Our Lord is alive and well and he speaks from his holy temple. And all the earth will one day keep silence before him. We can be assured that one day he will come and all things will be made new. And rather than drinking a cup of wrath, those who have trusted in him will drink a cup of mercy and fellowship with him. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for your mercy. Father, we read over these woes against Babylon and sometimes we can pass over them as though they have nothing to do with us. Father, I pray that you would remind us this morning that none of us are exempt. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short. Jew, Gentile, slave, free, man, woman, black, white, rich, poor. All stand under your wrath. And our only hope is to humble ourselves and by faith to trust in Jesus Christ. So, Father, I pray that each and every one of us would rest in that this morning and that we would rejoice in the mercy and forgiveness that we have received and the hope of your glory one day filling the earth. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.